Hey, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Really, really grateful to be with you all today. All right, let me pray for us before we hop into today's message. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are real. You're realer than the air that we're breathing. And so, God, our good God, we pray that you would meet us here in this moment. You are here and you have always been here. Help us to be aware of your nearness to us right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So I don't know if you're like me, but in our house, we really don't check the mail. Uh, most things that I have in my life are automated. They come to my email system, and I know there's really nothing good in the mailbox. With the exception of Christmas card season, which I love seeing all the beautiful faces, um, we basically just let our mail pile up for like months on end. I feel bad for our, the postal carriers because they just be jamming them joints in our mailbox to get stuff in. So usually, like once every couple of weeks, we bring the mail in and sort through the catalogs. But I'll never forget, years ago, when we actually first started a church in 2014, my wife was sorting through the mail, and she opened up a letter, and I saw her face drop. And I was like, that's not going to be good. And she passed me the letter, and it was a letter from the IRS. <laughs> yes, when they own you, they swarm you. And... Uh, and I knew it was going to be like the, all of the oxygen that was in the room, the good vibes left immediately. And the way, you know, way our bank account was set up, we had a check-ins and we had a savings. <laughs> we miscalculated some things, and by we, I mean me. And before we knew it, we had a nice amount of money to pay to the IRS. Now, we're good now, by the way. Uh, don't, I don't need anybody slipping me a $5 bill after service. <laughs> But debt is like a really weird feeling. Like we were just coasting, having a, a pretty chill day, and then we just felt this weight on our shoulder. Now, debt is a feeling that I don't have to describe to you. Americans are very comfortable and aware of this uh, concept of debt, and you know what it feels like. The average American has a lot of credit cards, student loans, no Sally Mae formed against me shall prosper, and um, <laughs> it all adds up. Now, debt carries with it not just a financial reality, but it also carries with it some very strong feelings. The first and probably biggest feeling that debt carries is that you immediately know that your choices are now limited. Debt limits your choices of what you can and cannot do. And as soon as that letter from the IRS came in, I knew that my wife better not catch me on a sneakers app. Like, I knew that there were some things in my life that I wanted to do that I couldn't do. Proposing to go out for a nice steak that night wasn't going to happen. I knew that we were going to have to now orient everything in our lives around this debt. We were going to have to make some changes. Now, there's something about debt that just hangs on your shoulders and you carry it everywhere you go. To be in debt means that you have to adjust your life around the thing and it impacts every area of your life. Now, check this out. Debt is not just financial. It could also be relational. It could be between two people. There are people in your life right now that you are obligated to, not because y'all signed a contract once upon a time, but because of all of the things that they have done for you. And because of what they have done for you, you now feel a sense of obligation everywhere you go to live in light of what was given to you. These obligations many times are not bad things, but they are realities. And all of us know what it feels like to live out of this sense of obligation for what has been done for us. You know, every single year at my family reunion in Virginia, in the boondocks, 
One of my cousins, uh, Cousin Ryland, shout out to Cousin Ryland if you're watching, he always says something that just like really profoundly touches me. He said something that really has shaped the way I think about my family and all the sacrifices that they made. One year he got up and he says, you know, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. All of the toil, all of the, the fight that they put up in the Jim Crow South, we are their wildest dreams. In my family's house at home, we have a, a big picture of um, our earliest, I guess, for our family, known ancestor, Spencer Jameson, um, and that's where we got the name from my oldest son, Jameson. And when I look at his picture, and when I think about all that my family did, all of the fighting that they did to make sure that I would have the freedoms and the opportunities that I have today, I think to myself, what kind of person would I be to not live in light of all of the sacrifices that they have given to me? If they fought for all of these opportunities for me to have, what kind of person would I be to not take those opportunities seriously, to not go after everything that they fought for me to have? Now, there's a beauty in that, and there's also a shadow in that, right? We're not meant to be human doings. We're meant to be human beings. But there is something about acknowledging the things that have been given to us. And would it be a shame? Would it not be a shame for me to live disregarding, ignoring, or playing down the sacrifices that were given to me? Now, the only reasonable response to someone's unobligated sacrifice for you is to live with an awareness of that sacrifice, and not just an awareness of what was sacrificed, but a sense of obligation to live in a way that honors the sacrifice that was given for you. So this is really, really important in the concept of what we're going to look at today as we continue in our Holy Spirit series. So we're looking at the Holy Spirit, and this is one piece of text. It's a beautiful scripture in Romans 8, written by a man named Paul. When Paul is talking about how Christians should live their life, he uses this same concept of debt and obligation. Paul doesn't talk about things in the concept of right and wrong all the time. There is a piece of our lives that are in the right and wrong category. But the main motivation that Paul wants his readers and you to get is a sense of obligation and this concept of debt. So here's what he says in Romans 8, verses 11 through uh, 13 right now. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, here's the language, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what Paul is saying here is profound. Paul is basically saying this, based on what God has done in your life, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So basically, Paul is hinting at is that the privilege of being a child of God involves a responsibility. It involves honor. It involves a relational debt. And Paul reminds us, his Christian brothers and sisters, that the gift that God places in our laps also gives us an obligation to live in light of that. So the word here for flesh, um, Americans are way too reductionistic. Whenever we think of flesh, we think of sex, right? Two people thought about that. Um, <laughs> 
I think when we think about the word flesh, we think about sex or things like that, but flesh is meant to be a, a much bigger concept in Scripture. It simply means our human nature, our appetites, our thinking, and our feeling. So what Paul is saying basically here is you are not obligated to obey your appetites. You are not, obey, you are not obligated to obey your, your thinking or your, your feeling. You and I are to live with a relational awareness of what God has done for us and to let that be the motivation for our lives. Here's what Paul is getting at, and here's what Paul lived with this in the reality of his life. Paul believed, early Christians believe, that God came to earth. He heard the cries of his people, and he came to earth in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus endured mocking, beating, and a crucifixion for you and for me. It wasn't pleasant, and the Bible actually spends a large part of the text the Gospels devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And we'll get to this when we get to Holy Week, but it doesn't skimp over any details. And it shows us the length that God has gone to to win us back for him. It shows the length that Jesus would go to to absorb God's wrath on our behalf. And in light of that, what Paul is saying, in light of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, man, we ought to live with a sense of obligation and gratitude for the life that has been given to us. What kind of daughters and sons will we be of God if we lived ignoring that? If we lived purely focusing on whether or not what we're doing is right or wrong, we're missing the picture of what um, Paul is painting. So here's a big idea for today uh, for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ. A Christian's obligation is to live out the righteousness that Christ has given to them based on his sacrificial death on the cross for us. So that's our, that's our obligation and that's our motivation. But uh, I've been a pastor long enough to know that functionally speaking, functionally speaking, that is not the thing that motivates us most days. You know, I don't even know what it was inside of me, but I remember when I first became a Christian and I just kept on thinking, I just want to get my life right. And I had a lot of different motivations that I would appeal to to try to do better. So I want to spare you all years of agony and misery by letting us know that some of these motivations that we appeal to, although on the surface they're not terrible things, they are insufficient to be your motivation and your driving factor in life. Pay attention to your motivations, because many of us, we're not doing the wrong things, we're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And so what Paul is trying to get us uh, to, to see today and part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to change not just your behavior, but to change your motivations for your behavior. So here's a couple of motivations that I've had over the years uh, to not do things. So I'll say no because I don't want to look bad. Um, I remember when I was on uh, campus and uh, I had told all my friends that I was a Christian. And the best way to keep yourself from doing stupid stuff is to tell everybody you're a Christian. And I started teaching a Bible study, and I did that to prevent me from doing stupid things. And really what happened was eventually I started to live a life that was just based on human perception of how I was doing. So I wouldn't do things not because I had an internal motivation to do it, but just because I didn't want to look bad. I had told everybody I was one thing, and I didn't want to come off as a hypocrite. Now, what that did to me was it actually split Jordan down the middle. I had an inner Jordan and an outer Jordan. This is really what the scripture would call hypocrisy. I was one way on the inside, but I was another thing in front of other people. So 
not one, wanting to look bad was a motivation um, that I had. No, because uh, I'll be excluded from the social circles I wanted to belong to. I wanted people to like me, so I wanted to put on a different front. Here's a big one. I said no to things, and this is probably the thing that, that probably is something that mingles with my motivations today. Because if I do something wrong that God doesn't want me to do, then God will not give me health, wealth, and happiness. Now, here's a really dangerous thing. If your motivation is to do right so that God gives you the things that you want, what if God doesn't give you those things? Seriously. Over the years as a pastor, I have seen people walk away from our church community. I've seen them walk away from Jesus. I've seen them walk away from the faith. And I've been, so, I've been in agony thinking about wishing I could have told them earlier, please do not lean your faith. Do not lean the weight of your life and your faith on God to do a certain thing. When Scripture tells us to lean our lives on God, it means to lean it on God and his character and his nature. But over the years, and this, I've been so guilty of this, I have equivocated God's goodness with God answering this prayer in this way. But what if God doesn't answer that prayer in that way? What if it's a no or what if it's a later? I'm afraid that so many of us will judge the painting of what God is making with our life in the middle and we'll be tempted to think that God is not good or that God doesn't love us because God didn't give us a thing. And if the motivation for your life is so that God can bless you, we have to be very careful about that. Now, the other side of it is scripture tells us that God is a good father. And I have been so blessed to hear the praise reports of what God has done in people's lives to answer prayers. So if you have prayers that you're praying, pray them boldly. Pray them boldly. You're probably not praying boldly enough. That being said, if the motivation for your life and how you behave right, right now is based on wanting God to do something for you, it's only going to get you so far. That's a shallow motivation. Another big motivation I, I had was I didn't want God to send me to hell. So I said, I'll just do whatever he wants me to do because I don't want to go to hell one day or because I'll, I'll hate myself in the morning. Uh, there's a long list of, of motivations that I've had over the years, and none of them have been able to produce inside of me what God wants to produce inside of me and what God wants to produce inside of you, which is a Christ-likeness. God wants to produce Christ-likeness in all of us, and God's methods for that are time and sometimes difficulty, community, all the things that he wants to do. But first and foremost, we got to get to our motivations. So think about it right now. What is your motivation? Why are you here today? What are you in search of? You know, there's a scripture in John 1 where Jesus is walking and disciples are following behind Jesus and Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? And I've always thought about that question to say, well, Jesus, if you were to ask me that question, what would be my response? What would I want you to do for me? So I think we would do well to pay attention to our motivations um, because if we appeal to the wrong thing, pride or fear or guilt as our motivation for following Jesus, it will only put us in a cycle of self-effort. Uh, instead, we are to be led by the Spirit towards something much more beautiful and bigger than those motivations. So God's, the, God the Holy Spirit is, in, is after your fidelity, you falling in love with Jesus. That, not that you do the right thing, but that you love Jesus more than you love anything else. One of the things that's so profound about Jesus when he talks about what it means to be a disciple, he says, if any man desires to come after me, let him pick up his cross 
um, deny himself and follow me daily. I've taught so many messages talking so much about denying yourself and picking up your cross. And even I've missed out on the first part. The first part, the thing that fuels you is desire. If any man desires, if any woman desires to come after me, and what the Holy Spirit wants to produce inside of you is a desire, a new motivation, a fidelity, a love for Jesus that outweighs everything else. There's a scripture in 1 Peter 2 and 11. It says this, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Peter says these things, and it it sheds light on a couple of concepts. Number one, the first concept is that sin is not harmless. It really is waging war against your soul. It might appear to be one thing, but it is waging war actively against your soul. Now, here's one thing that's so profound about what Peter says in the scripture. He uses the concept of of a military invasion, of a war. Now, the closest analogy we have to that right now is the war in Ukraine, where Russia has invaded uh, Ukraine. And if we were to look at the Russian invasion to get a clear example of what war seeks to accomplish, here's what it's after. What war seeks to accomplish is allegiance. Putin just doesn't want to just bomb Ukraine, although he's doing a lot of that. What he wants is the allegiance of Ukrainians to Russia. So the, the purpose of war is so that you would, have, you would take your fidelity away from the sovereign that you're supposed to have and put it to someone else. And what Peter is saying is, watch out for, um, I, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires because they are waging war against your soul. They want to be turned to, to be trusted, to be relied on. And in order to do that, God, the rightful sovereign, must first be dethroned in our life. And this is how we sin against God. Sin against God is not just doing something that's wrong. It's turning our allegiance away from God and putting it on something else. Let me come down your street a little bit. One of the biggest challenges, somebody said, oh, no, uh, uh, I'll come down that street. (laughs) One of the biggest challenges that people have to live uh, for Jesus in, in every single context, whether you're in New York City or Islamabad or Fayetteville, North Carolina, is there will always be people who don't like what you're doing. Jesus says, blessed is the one who endures persecution on account of me, which means that just because if for everybody who wants to follow Jesus, you will experience difficulty because you are a Christian. Now, here's where sin comes into the picture. Sin is not doing the wrong thing and playing down your allegiance to Jesus. Sin is seeking the good name from other people and seeking harmony from other people more than you want God to, more than you cherish and value God's well done over your life. So we minimize our faith, we change things, not simply because we've done the wrong thing, but we've sought peace from the good opinion of other people. That is the essence of what Peter and Paul say is sin, is that we're giving our allegiance to someone else. And the goal that scripture is pushing us towards is our allegiance to him. And the Holy Spirit's ministry to us is to show how big Jesus is, the depth of his sacrifice for us, so that you and I would have a heart won over by him so that our life wouldn't just be about right and wrong, but about faithfulness to God. You know, it's interesting, whenever I talk to couples who are going through uh, a challenging time, a lot of times it's, it's really fascinating. I think that like once I come into the picture, I think people are really excited because they think I'm going to be the judge of their argument. So they're like, they're talking and they're going back and forth. 
and they're arguing. They're like, whoa, 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 it was 2 p.m. It was not 3 p.m. It was 2. I'm going to let you finish. Go ahead. And they're going back and forth like a tennis match on these details. And in my mind, I know I'm about to disappoint them because I don't care about the facts. Like, I, I truly do not care about splitting the hairs and trying to be an arbitrator or a judge of what is right and what is wrong. Now, clearly there are some things that are just right and wrong, but most of these things are not the situations that I'm brought into. What I'm, my goal in every single time I, I counsel a couple is not to determine for them what is right or what is wrong, but rather to s- let them see how their actions are affecting the relationship. So the question is not whether or not it's okay for you to play video games until three in the morning, Everything is permissible, but not, not everything is beneficial. So is what you're doing beneficial to the relationship? And if the relationship is your number one priority, your number one goal, then you'll behave differently. If the relationship is not the number one goal, you'll behave differently as well. My goal is always to take their attention from right and wrong and to put it towards the thriving of that relationship, to make their relationship be the number one thing that is important. Again, Right and wrong have their spaces. They have their uh, place in our life. But what Paul in Scripture is trying to push us to is to look at our life with God, not just in the sense of doing the right thing, but doing the right thing for the right reasons and having the right motivation in how we live uh, our lives. So we have an obligation, Paul says. We have an obligation to do what? So we have an obligation to put to death the deeds of the body. In verse 12, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Holy Spirit, you do something, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this phrase, people have written books and books on this. If by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. What Scripture is talking about is a concept called sanctification. We are indebted to God, and we display our obligation to God by working alongside his Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Now, if you grew up in a a church, a holiness church, you know what it means to be saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost filled. Um, But we're not necessarily talking about in in those terms right now. Uh, When I say the word sanctification, it's a big Christian word. It means this. It is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. I'll say that again. It is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. So sanctification is really our participation in what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life, and it's not just doing a better job at everything, but it's also having a different motivation and a different affection, a different well from which we live our lives. Um, So real transformation um, is a couple of things, at least, and we'll get to some of this next week when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. First and foremost, I really want to make sure nobody hears me saying something I'm not saying. There's so much in our life right now that is done instantly. There's so much in our life that we can acquire without pain. But the process of real spiritual growth does not come quickly, and it does not come easily. The process of growth always happens, it starts with a seed. And that seed is first buried into the ground, and it goes through a form of death. 
And if you were to look from the outside, looking in, you would say, you just ruined that seed. It was nice on the outside, but then you just buried it in the dirt. And now it's going through all of this breaking up. The first and necessary part of all of our growth is what God does to us when he, what God does to us when we give him our lives in such a way that we allow God to, to break away the things in our lives that are keeping us from him. I was, you know, sitting behind a curtain and just singing along the beautiful songs that were being sung. And the concept of breakthrough is a really interesting one. Breakthrough happens after God has broken us. Breakthrough doesn't happen without God breaking us. We are the thing that God needs, needs to break for breakthrough. And one of the m- most important and necessary steps is that you and I would be given fuel and power by the Holy Spirit to learn how to lay our lives down and to hold on to God through the daily process of laying down ourselves and dying to self. The second part of this scripture that I really want us to think about is the concept of time. So the process of God's work in your life happens after we allow God to break us. And that means going back to some really difficult stuff sometimes. That means giving God access to parts of our lives that we would much rather him not have. That means letting go of the dream of life that we thought we wanted from life. That's some painful stuff. Nobody wants that. And then we have to give it some time. One of my favorite uh, authors and a friend of mine, he says, give it everything you have and then give it time. And what he was getting at with that is the process of transformation happens in organic terms. It's not like a Subaru that you can build in a week. It is like a mustard seed that starts off in the ground and it grows slowly but surely. So this is a work of sanctification. It is a slow process. And how it happens, how God does this through the Holy Spirit is through conviction. God convicts us, not necessarily in the negative sense of what not to do. God convicts us and tells us who we really are. God convicts us to let you know who you really are, to stir inside of you a deeper affection for Jesus. Here's what he says in verses 14 through 15. He says this, for all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. So I'm going to stop really quickly here. A lot of times people have a problem with scripture saying how it like erases women. And certainly people have all throughout the times and historical context and, and Bible, there's very good reason to, to think critically about that. But when scripture here says that for all those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons, it's not trying to erase women from this. It's talking about an economic reality. In ancient Rome, the only people who were allowed to, to be heirs to receive property were men. So what Paul is saying is everybody, sons and daughters, for all of you who are led by God's spirit, you are an heir, an equal co-heir to receive everything that God has for you to receive. One of the mistakes we make is that when we read scripture, we read it through a modern lens and miss out on some of the beauty of what it was trying to communicate. Paul was not dismissing women. He was trying to elevate women to show you this is the full extent of everybody who has placed their faith in Christ. You get it all. So in verse 15, it, it continues. It says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The most beautiful concept or paradigm in scripture is that God has made us his children. And Paul, in Romans, is letting us know that one of the ways that we avoid fear, a fear-based approach to God, if I do it wrong, he won't bless me, is by being made aware by the Holy Spirit that you and I 
are adopted by God, brought into his family. Now, let me nerd out for like two seconds. In ancient, Rome, ancient Roman households, they had one head of household called a paterfamilias, which basically meant the head of the family estate. This was an economic reality. There was one person in every family who owned everything, and you had to wait for that person to die to give you shares of their estate. While they were alive, they owned everything. You owned nothing. And the only way to get money was by uh, inheritance, by receiving the gift from someone else. Now, back in the day, sometimes there would be a paterfamilias, a head of household, who did not have any male heirs. So what they would do is they would adopt someone, and that adopted child, that adopted son, would now become a Roman citizen and would now have all of the rights and the privileges of their father, their adopted father. Not just that, but as Francis Lyle says in his book, Slave Citizens and Sons, he says, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and was placed in a new relationship of son to his new father, his new paterfamilias, head of household. All of his old debts are canceled. And in effect, the adoptee started a brand new life as a part of his new family. The father also assumed and was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each one owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. And what Paul is saying is the beauty of the gospel is not merely that God forgives you. That is a negative term. Forgiveness is just a negative concept. Forgiveness means you can walk away without being punished. The beauty of the gospel is not merely that God forgives you for your sins, although if that's all God did, that would be absolutely incredible. The beauty of the gospel, what Paul is getting to, is that God doesn't just say, you can go. He says, you can come. Now, what I've done for you has paved the way for you to be my child, to receive all of the things that I have for you in store. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who he loves. And so this is the motivation that Paul wants us to live with, that God has gone to enormous lengths in the person of Jesus Christ to adopt us. The adoption certificate was not signed in Bic. It was signed in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, through meditating on this reality, through looking at Jesus on the cross, through realizing the extent to which we have been adopted, through looking at the sacrifices that have been given to us, we will become more and more aware of the obligation that we are to live under. Now, here's the goal of it. Verse 16 and 17, and it says this, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. Now, Paul is basically here using legal language, and he says the Spirit hops on the witness stand, and he testifies together that you and I have been adopted into God's family. In the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of who you are and whose you are. That is living with conviction. Living with conviction is not about avoiding the wrong thing, but is living with a bigger goal in mind. A person who lives with conviction is not just merely an athlete who lives with conviction that they're trying to get to the winner's stand. They're not just living trying to avoid bad food or to try to have a couple of workouts. They have a higher goal in mind. Uh, my wife and I, we have... Um, we came from different backgrounds in terms of parenting. I grew up uh, receiving spankings, and uh, she grew up having long conversations with her parents. <laughs> I was a different child, too, so, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. 
And uh, we've clashed on parenting styles, I'll just say it like that, in terms of how we raise our sons. And um, one thing that we were able to really come to an agreement is, is we had to first refine and clarify our goal in parenting. And I think I was parenting backwards, like I was parenting on what I didn't want my kids to do versus what do I want them to experience. I heard a, pa- a pastor once say this recently, he said, the goal of parenting should be to raise your kids in such a way that when they no longer have to be around you, they want to be around you and their siblings. And if that is the goal, then you'll just move differently. Because if you are raised in such a way that the goal is not just about doing right or wrong or avoiding this or doing this, but we live in a family, and the goal is always family and our togetherness and our love for each other and us holding each other down. That's a deeper well than just doing right or doing wrong. And God wants to dig a deeper well in our life. He wants us to live with a conviction that will keep us close to him, even if we don't uh, know what to do in, in front of us. And so this is meant to give us a, a real security. The Holy Spirit's job is to give you real security um, that we are not slaves or employees or servants. We are sons and daughters. An employee or a servant obeys out of fear of punishment or loss of a job. No matter how great your greatest employee is, they are only doing that because they don't want to get fired. <laughs> but a child-parent relationship is not characterized by fear because you can't end that. It also gives us authority. We have the status of sons and daughters, not a slave. In a household, um, slaves can only do what they were told to do, but, under their, but kids under their parents have authority over the house. They are not mere servants. God has given you authority. Bigger than authority and even security is intimacy. Scripture says, by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, or Daddy. This was an Aramaic term best translated as Daddy, and it was a term of greatest intimacy. And I think what the Holy Spirit wants us to do is to remind you by showing us Jesus on the cross, look at the lengths of how much I love you to make you mine, and you are mine. The last thing is the Holy Spirit wants us to have assurance. Scripture says the Spirit testifies together with our spirit, that when we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit comes alongside of us and gives us assurance that we truly belong to God. And to the extent that we become more aware of our belonging to God, that will change your life from the inside out. And so what do we do with this this week? Um, First and foremost, um, these are some like big, glorious, brilliant truths. I'll never forget years ago, um, going to my, my wife's family, we were hanging out in Jamaica in the mountains, and in the mountains, um, there was this, like, this beautiful like, sky. You can just see all of the stars. And I was talking to one of the friends, I was like, oh, yeah, that's because there's, there's no light pollution. If you think about it, the stars in the sky don't need pitch black for them to be stars. They are these gigantic balls of gas that are burning at millions of degrees that if you were to get close to it, it would devour a whole planet. And yet these planets, I mean, these stars don't need darkness for themselves, but in order for us to experience them, we do need darkness. If we have too many small lights close to us, we'll miss out on the brilliant lights that are ahead of us and above us. And I think so many of us miss out on the brilliant truths of Scripture because there's too much light pollution in our life. We have too many other things right in front of us. 
And so my challenge to you this week is to pick up Romans 8, and it's a scripture that has given me great comfort over the years, and to give yourself some time in solitude, and to let these truths wash over you, not crowded around by the hundred things else going on in your life, but for a moment, to give them time to be reflected on, and by God's grace, we will see their power and their brilliance. That's what we need more than anything. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I know I'm so guilty of living with the wrong motivation other than the fact that you have made me your child. And to, to live a life not grateful or not indebted to that, Lord, has been a great temptation of mine. So, Lord, help me, help us to see you as supreme. Help us to live with the goal of relationship in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.